Good evening. Welcome to Theology on Tap, our summer series. It's so good to see everybody, and I'm super grateful to Stacy for moving it inside, even though it's warm in here. It is warmer outside, so it's, it's not that bad. We'll get close. My name is Monica Aquila, and I am going to be your MC uh, for three out of the four uh, summer sessions of Theology on Tap this summer. I work at St. Vincent de Paul Parish. I'm the pastoral associate for communications there. I've been married for 12 years. I have a daughter who's 11. She's a joy. Um, I think I got here tonight because I really love Jesus, and I happen to be friends with like one person on the planning team, and they were like, who do we know? She likes people, and now I'm here. So you get to be with me. So our series theme this summer is The Road to Emmaus, which was chosen by our young adult planning team. They've been working together for the last few months to plan this whole thing for us with that theme. Throughout this series, our speakers are going to be unpacking these four ideas that are contained in the story of the two disciples who encounter the resurrected Christ on the road to Emmaus, which is finding Christ in chaos, finding Christ in suffering, finding Christ in scripture, and finding Christ in the breaking of the bread, as those two followers did in the Emmaus story from the Gospel of Luke. I'm not going to read it to you right now because I think you're going to get that in our talk a little later. We have two patron saints for Theology on Tap this summer. One of them is Pope John Paul II because he is the patron saint of young people and all around awesome. And St. Cleopas, who was one of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. So we have a double patron, which is awesome. And Father Patrick, I think, is going to lead us in our opening prayer. Good evening, everyone. So if you all have your card in front of you, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Stay with us, Lord, for it is almost evening. Lord, this was the insistent invitation of the two disciples journeying to Emmaus on the evening of the day of the resurrection. They addressed these words to you, the wayfarer, who had accompanied them on their journey. Weighed down with sadness, they never imagined that the stranger was you, their master, risen from the dead. Yet they felt their hearts burning within them as you spoke to them and explained the scriptures. Light of the world, unlock the hardness of our hearts and open our eyes. Amid the shadows of the passing day and the darkness that clouds our spirits, O divine wayfarer, bring a ray of light which will enkindle our hope and lead our hearts to yearn for the fullness of life. Stay with us, we plead, as you agreed to the disciples' request. Please agree to ours. Stay with us. Soon afterwards, Jesus, your face would disappear from the sight of the disciples, yet you, their master, would stay with them, hidden in the breaking of the bread, which had opened their eyes to recognize you. Jesus, may we learn to recognize you in our midst, become aware of your presence in every circumstance, particularly in the gift of the Eucharist. Amen. St. John Paul II, pray for us. St. Cleopas, pray for us. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, so now without further ado, I'm going to introduce to you our speaker for the night, which is Mrs. Cindy Black, who is a very dear friend of mine. Cindy has a Master of Arts in Theology from the University of Notre Dame. She's been married for 30 years and has two adult children. While her life's mission is to share God's love and affirm the inherent dignity of every person, she is easily distracted by babies, 
and plants. And on a personal note, I have to say, Cindy is one of my favorite people in the world. So if you don't know her yet, you're about to get a treat. Cindy is one of these people who like any person who comes in contact with her, she just knows how to love them. Like no matter what your background is, no matter where you're coming from, what your beliefs are, Cindy loves people. And she's such an inspiration to me and a mentor and a friend to me. So I'm so excited to get to introduce you to her and her to you tonight. And I'm going to invite her to come up and share her words of wisdom. So unlike my friend Monica, I'm an introvert. So I would be more comfortable sitting at your table and just asking you about your life than being up here talking. Um, But I prayed and the Lord asked me to do this, so here I am. What I would like to start with, because when I was first asked to do a talk on finding God in the chaos, and I was told that the scripture connected with this series is the road to Emmaus, I thought, when I read the road to Emmaus, it seems all neat and tidy to me. Well, then I took it to prayer and... It's not exactly chaos in the road to Emmaus that I encountered, but I'm going to share with you a little bit what I did encounter in in prayer and reflection. But first, I want to ask you to put yourself in the story of the road to Emmaus. So this takes place on the exact day of the resurrection. So this is just later on in the day. So right after the events of Holy Thursday, where Jesus has his agony in the garden, where he sweated blood, where he asked the cup to pass, where his friend Judas betrayed him, where he was scourged, where he carried his cross, was crucified. So this is the very next day after his followers had somewhat journeyed with him. So I want to put you want you to put yourself in the place of being a follower of Christ. And you're on that very first Easter Sunday. And I'd like you to either, I don't like closing my eyes when people say this because I tend to get vertigo from that, but I don't want you like looking around the room necessarily. I want you to really like maybe look downward and focus and try to enter in. And first I would ask you, who are you journeying with? So think of somebody in your life that you probably spend the most time with right now, because that's probably who you would have been with at this time. Now, that very day, two of you were going to a village seven miles away from Jerusalem called Emmaus. You were conversing about all the things that had occurred. And it happened that while you were conversing and debating, Jesus himself drew near and walked with you. But your eyes were prevented from recognizing him. He asked you, what are you discussing as you walk along? You and your friends stopped, looking downcast. One of you, named Cleopas, said to him in reply, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know of the things that have taken place these past days? Jesus replied, What sort of things? You said to him, The things that happened to Jesus the Nazarene, 
who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, how our chief priests and rulers both handed him over to a sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that he would be the one to redeem Israel. And besides all this, it is now the third day since this took place. Some women from our group, however, have astonished us. They were at the tomb earlier in the morning and did not find his body. They came back and reported that they had seen a vision of angels and announced that he's alive. But then some of us went to the tomb and found things just as the woman had described. But him we did not see. And Jesus said to you, Oh, how foolish you are! How slow of heart to believe all that the prophets spoke! Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to you what referred to him in all the scriptures. As the three of you, you, your friend, and Jesus, approached the village to which you were going, Jesus gave the impression that he was going on farther. But you and your friend urged him, stay with us, for it is nearly evening and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with you. And it happened that while he was at table with you, he took bread said the blessing, broke it, and gave it to you. With that, your eyes were opened, and you recognized him. But he vanished from your sight. Then you said to each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he spoke to us on the way and opened the scriptures to us? So you set out at once and returned to Jerusalem, where you found gathered together the eleven and those with them who were saying, The Lord has truly been raised and has appeared to Simon. Then you recounted to them what had taken place on the way and how Jesus was made known to you in the breaking of the bread. What are some of the adjectives or adverbs that describe your vision of taking that journey, that imaginative walk with Jesus to Emmaus. Does anyone want to throw some out there? Fulfilling? Love? Yep, surreal. What about at the beginning of the walk? Confusion, that's, that's one of the ones that I came up, thought of when I reflected. Maybe disappointment, like wonder, like what, what was this all about? One word that doesn't come to my mind is chaos. But the name of this talk tonight is Finding Christ in Chaos. First of all, I would like to know who on the Theology on Tap committee has been spying on me to know that I would be a good person to give a talk on chaos. Second, if you think your life is chaotic right now, just say yes to giving a talk on chaos and see how the Lord provides even more stuff for you to deal with. But let's take a closer look at the scene. Um, on your prayer card, they already gave you the answer to this, but who was walking? Cleopas and his friend. 
actually, if anyone's done like read commentary, it was likely that it was Cleopas and his wife. Because the other person walking wasn't named, it was probably a woman. And for Cleopas to be walking just with a woman on a road by themselves, um, it would have been required that they be married. So probably Cleopas and his wife were walking. Where else do we encounter Cleopas in the scriptures? Nowhere. It's the first time he's mentioned. He's mentioned on this walk to Emmaus, but he's not mentioned by name in any of the other gospels. In any of the other stories, he's not mentioned. So what does this tell us about them? That they were followers of Jesus, but they were not in his inner circle. They were not the ones that when he would go off alone to pray, who were allowed to accompany him or invited to accompany him or felt close enough to accompany him. The disciples on the road to Emmaus would have been followers, but not intimately known, um, would have not have intimately known and been known by Jesus. When Jesus spoke to the multitudes, to those that were not in his inner circle, he delivered messages like the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. He feeds the 5,000. Those followers of Jesus who are not in his inner circle, he comforts the afflicted. Now let's contrast that with what he says to the disciples and those who are in his inner circle. He says, if you're to follow him, you have to take up your cross daily. You have to suffer. You have to be last and deny yourself. Whoever wishes to save his life must lose it. Last Tuesday, our gospel for Mass gives an example, a specific example of kind of a glimpse into that inner circle. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into the boat and set out. And as they sailed, Jesus fell asleep. A squall came up on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are going to drown. Jesus got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked the disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. When I was a young adult, I didn't know that a relationship with the Lord was even possible. I definitely believed in God, but he was this distant being that, didn't, that I really didn't know and I tended to only cry out to him in anguish and resentment when I encountered chaos in my life. Like those disciples in the boat, I cried out, but I really couldn't hear his voice in those moments. And I don't know what your story is. My story involves my parents getting divorced when I was seven. And by the time I was college age, my mom was on her third marriage. 
when I was away at IU for my first semester in college, my family merged with my mom's husband's family, and they joked that we were like the Brady Bunch. I don't, do you even know who the Brady Bunch are? The first blended family on TV. But trust me, we weren't smiling and waving to each other in the Zoom panels like they are on the show. Um, what's up? <laughs> we also didn't have a maid. Um, so when I came home, I felt like I really didn't have a home, but I was searching and seeking, and it felt like I had all this turmoil and chaos in my life, and I wasn't sure what to do with it. The Lord was still with me and pursuing me, but it really wasn't until years later, after I had already had a child, that I encountered the love of Jesus Christ on a Christ Renews weekend. And that was really a transforming time for me and sent my life on a completely different trajectory. Like Monica, I spent my early days in ministry as a youth director. Father Mark Gertner from Our Lady was my boss. He's the one who encouraged me to take a job in ministry. And he was also, we were a life team parish, and our core team, he was the spiritual director of our core team at the time, so teaching us all to be better followers of Jesus Christ. He taught us what he called the scary prayer. And it goes, Lord, make me a saint, no matter what it takes. And I really tried to pray that prayer sincerely. But as a mom, I added an additional clause. It sounded something like, Lord, make me a saint, no matter what it takes. As long as it doesn't involve seeing my children suffer tremendously, then make me a saint any way you want, as long as it doesn't hurt them. I also thought because my husband and I were making intentional efforts to raise our children to know and love Jesus Christ, that when they experience chaos, that it wouldn't be as traumatic for them as it had been for me those years ago as a young adult. I thought my children would suffer less than I did. And for their privacy and the privacy of several people that I'm going to talk about, I won't go into a lot of detail. I'm just going to do like an overview of some of the things that my children have encountered. Even though they're children of an upper middle class, white, intact biological family that may have appeared to have it all together, my children have gone through some serious chaos, including but not limited to having their childhood home foreclosed on, jail, physical and emotional trauma, abuse, having school and civil systems fail them repeatedly for years, a panic disorder, anxiety, depression, some pretty intense suffering. I've been in the boat with my children as storms have tossed them about. And as a follower of Jesus, considering myself in his inner circle, I've cried out to him on behalf of my children to please send calm to them. And sometimes he does bring calm, but it's usually temporary. Often when Jesus calms the storms in my own biological children's lives, these other young adult children that I call spiritual children come along, and I'm asked to journey with them in their chaos. 
There's a young man that I first met on this very campus. He's considerably older now, lives in a different state, but he is gay and bipolar. And I always end up encountering him when his life is in complete and utter chaos. I know when he sees me, he's relieved and I'm thinking, oh no, can I really journey with him through the next thing? But God always provides. Another time, a spiritual brother from Haiti who was living a bachelor's life took in two teen cousins who are at risk of deportation and I became their spiritual mother. Another young man who I supervised at work came to me asking me not to fire him and that he be allowed to transition to present as a female. Recently, the Lord has connected me with a self-described middle-aged washed-up dyke whose life is in chaos because of toxic relationships, starting with her parents and also from being rejected by her Christian youth group when she was in middle school for being gay when she said she didn't even know she was at the time. The Lord has given me both biological and spiritual young adult children who need to be accompanied on their journey. Sometimes Jesus brings temporary calm, but oftentimes when I've held them physically or emotionally, I cry out to him in desperation to help my child. Please bring them calm. And sometimes he does, but more times than not, he says, my grace is sufficient. I have repeated over and over, Jesus, I trust in you. Just like the father in the scriptures, whose son was possessed by a demon that Jesus' disciples could not drive out, who said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus said, everything is possible for one who has faith. I want to have faith, but after time and time again of holding my children, spiritual and biological, through intense darkness, then I'm reminded that the person on earth who was closest to Jesus, so not Cleopas, not even the apostles that he called by name, but by his mother, Mary. When Joseph and Mary presented their child in the temple, what did the prophet Simeon reveal? That a sword would pierce Mary's own heart. If the goal of the Christian life is to grow in intimacy with Jesus Christ, to be conformed to him, then we have to learn to find Jesus in the chaos. Because there's never been a greater chaos in the history of the world, in the history of the universe, than Jesus Christ, fully God, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good, submitting to his agony, passion, and death on the cross, and no greater suffering that a mother has had than to be at the foot of that cross. As young adults, please be aware of and even expect chaos in the lives, in your lives, in those around you, and even in the church. The church as the mystical body of Christ takes on all of the ills of the fallen world. And even though I don't really, I haven't spent much time trying to learn how things work within the biology 
Um, one thing COVID-19 did was make us all aware of how antibodies work. So Jesus, who never sinned, took on sin for our salvation. Likewise, for the church to be a source of healing, we have to take on every virus and every like chaos of the world in order for the church to be an anecdote, to give people the antibodies to those viruses. So my chaos continues. Your chaos probably continues. And as someone who has ministered to probably a 1,000 teens and young adults through the years, I have to believe that Jesus is pursuing my own children, my young adult children, biological and spiritual, with a strength that surpasses any of Satan's schemes. I entrust them to Jesus, to Mother Mary, and to you, the young church, because many of them are far away from the church right now. I entrust them to Jesus, Mary, and you. I ask you to witness to them the way that since the universe's creation, God and God alone brings order to chaos. And in his kingdom, all chaos, every form of chaos, those that we bring on ourselves and those that come from without diminishes and fades away in the lavishness of God's love and his union that we are destined for for all eternity. Now more importantly than hearing a 50-some-year-old woman share about the chaos of her life, I want you to turn to each other. You have small group um, if you look at the QR code, I just invite you to journey, to enter into and be willing to share chaos that you or others around you have experienced and be willing to listen to each other with your hearts, being willing to embrace your brothers and sisters in the storms that they've encountered or are encountering now and then we'll reconvene in a little bit to see if there's any questions or ways that I can journey with you. Oh, Father. How's it going? It's going well. I finished my talk and I'm having a beer. Well, perfect. Perfect. Uh, so question. Can you talk about like walking with Christ during chaos? Also talk about like, how like God's providence fit, fits into this and the tendency to always make every little thing a catastrophe. It's like this is the worst thing that ever happened. So how do you not do that and trust in God's providence during chaotic times when it seems like everything is a catastrophe? Yeah. Well, here's the thing. When we're in the chaos and something feels like the worst catastrophe ever, how do we put it in perspective that it's probably not the worst catastrophe ever? Probably not, yes. So it really doesn't matter if it's the worst catastrophe ever or not. Because when Jesus takes on our humanity, he takes on all of those things. 
and he wants to be united to you, whether it just seems like a catastrophe to you or whether it really is. So he wants to enter into that. And I hate to break the news to you. This is the great paradox of the gospel. The worse we suffer, the closer to Jesus we can become. He suffered so that we would be able to bring meaning out of our suffering. So as hard as it is to do when we're in the midst of it, we should be finding a way to say, thank you, Jesus. I get to share in your suffering. I get to be united to you in a way that I wouldn't have been if it was smooth sailing. Did that get everything that you were kind of, okay. He was asking on behalf of y'all because he probably could have answered it better. <laughs> Anything to add, Father? Okay. <laughs> and it's not just limited to questions. If you have a comment, you have wisdom, you have, you've been through things that I don't know about. So, Sam. One of our favorite questions to ask, uh, what are your favorite books? Oh, gosh. Let's see. My favorite books. My fa very favorite of all time, of course, aside from scripture, is I Believe in Love. It's a book written by um, Father Delby, D-E-L-B-E-E. -E -E, and he leads retreats based on the teachings of St. Therese. That was really life-changing for me. Non-spiritual books, um, I'm a big fan of Patrick Lencioni. He wrote Five Dysfunctions of a Team, Traits of a Healthy Executive, like all kinds of things about working together that not only apply to organizations in our work, but share a lot of wisdom about our personal relationships. Our team at Spoke Street Media, everyone, even before they're hired, does the um, working genius assessment, and it sheds a lot of light into our working genius and our working frustrations so that we can better draw on the gifts of one another. So they have a podcast called um, Working Genius and at the Table, so... If you're a reader, read Patrick Lanchoni's books. If you're not, listen to his podcasts. Howdy. Hi. Um, who is your favorite saint? And could you explain why they are your favorite saint? So I sat down on that question <laughs> because it really depends on what I'm like, what's going on in my life. I love that there's saints for about every different situation. My two children are eh, with the faith right now. So St. Monica and I are spending a lot of time together. In my work, in doing evangelism, you know, I draw on Venerable Fulton Sheen, on JP2. I like, personally, I'm edified by um, Servant of God Dorothy Day, some of the stuff she's been through. I think it could do a lot of good for our world to have um, a woman who's post-abortive and who tried to um, take her own life as a canonized saint. So, yeah. 
Hi. Hi. Um, you talked earlier about your children um, and how you would pray, um, like, God make me a saint, except, like, don't make your children <laughs> suffer. Um, so I'm not a mom, but, like, hopefully, God willing, someday I'd like to be. And I guess my question is, how did you structure your prayer differently from, like, don't let anything bad happen to them to, like, I want them to become a saint, but, like, I would imagine as a mom, you still don't want them to suffer. So, like, right. how do you pray um, for that? The more I pray and the more I've journeyed with people, like my spiritual children, young adult children, it's really shown me that God is pursuing them. And even somebody's life who might not look like they would respond favorably to Jesus, it's in them. I know that those years of, of praying as a family and... Um, and just the fact that I try to love them wherever they are, I think makes them a little bit more open to Jesus. I find a lot of consolation. Actually, I should probably read. I have not read St. Faustina's Diary. Has anyone read that? Maybe you can tell me. Okay. Does Jesus tell her in there that... Jesus reaches out to a soul three times and they have to refuse his mercy three times before they go to hell. Does, can anyone confirm or deny that? <laughs> okay, well, I bank on that, that I try to use the name of Jesus as much as possible to my biological and spiritual young adult children that I have. I use his name a lot as much as I can without being weird. Well, they might think it's weird, actually. Um, but anyway, I let them know that Jesus loves them. And I let them know that the reason I love them is because Jesus loves them first. Um, and that Jesus asks me to love them. So my hope is just by using his name and trying to be as loving and nurturing as possible, I fall short of that a lot. I cussed out my young adult son a couple days ago, and that wasn't, I wasn't using Jesus' name in the right way. But I try to use his name and reflect his goodness enough that if Jesus, at the moment of their death, if he reaches out to them three times, if nothing else, that they can hear their name, and it can bring some sense of trust to receive his mercy. That's what kind of keeps me going. And God's got this all figured out. I can't see inside the human heart. I can't see inside my friend who's immersed in, like, lesbian relationships who is infuriated and keeps texting me about the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Like, how can you as a woman, like want women to lose bodily autonomy. And like, I still try to like love her and explain what I know. But my hope is that if I'm using his name enough that even she, when Jesus reaches out and extends his mercy to her, that somehow I've pushed her more in the direction of accepting that mercy than away from it. And that brings me great consolation. He knows what's in her heart. 
He knows. I mean, we're all of age. I think I can share. She's shared with me that (laughs) she even said, Cindy, now you believe in a church. Like as Catholics, you think that I'm a sinner. And she's like, even though I believe in a moral code, and as far as moral codes go, it seems like the Ten Commandments are a good way to go as far as being decent human beings to other human beings. And she says, but your church would condemn me because every once in a while, not even on a daily or weekly basis, I have sex with other women. And I say, no, our church does not condemn you because of that. Our church doesn't celebrate that, but our church doesn't condemn you either. Because the fact of the matter is, if I lived her life and the broken relationship she's had with her father and her mother and being rejected by people in her non-denominational Christian youth group, I might be the same. I don't know. She also says that one of the reasons why she has sex with other women is because there's not enough non-sexual physical touch in our world. Her love language is physical touch. And she longs for that. She feels worth when somebody is expressing their caring for her by touching her. And she says, other women just want sex from her. So that's how she has to get her needs for physical affection met. Um, Gosh, that was a long, heavy, deep thing. But I think we have to recognize the brokenness of our neighbors, the chaos that they're experiencing in their lives, and we have to be willing to enter into that and sit with them let them know their dignity and that they are deeply loved by God because God loves my friend who's in the lesbian world just as much as he loves Pope Francis, St. Peter, St. Cleopas, St. JP too. Jesus didn't just die for people who are already canonized saints, but he came to help the wounded and the sick. Um, Sorry, off my soapbox, back to questions. Hi, mine was a pretty similar question. Okay. Um, Just as a friend or a family member, how can I support those in my life that are either like gay or transgender? Um, How can I help them and like continue to help them grow with their relationship with Christ and like kind of support them and push them towards that still? Um, I would say, first of all, loving them unconditionally and affirming the good that you do see in them. But then also praying to the Holy Spirit that every time you have an interaction that you say what they most need at that moment. Actually, a friend of mine used an analogy that I just love um, in a conversation we were having. If somebody's living in darkness and our world has a lot of darkness about identity and sexual issues, if somebody's living in darkness to shine a spotlight in their eyes after darkness, it's almost too much that they can't see, that sometimes we have to slowly reveal the light 
And the Holy Spirit is the person who will, who dwells within us and also wants to transform their heart at the same time. So just really praying and asking, like, if you want me to say more, you've got to open it up. And that's where my friend Ryan sometimes asks, like, she opens up because I'm praying to the Holy Spirit. She says things and I'm able to journey with her. The same thing with the young person that told me that he wanted to transition. Um, I asked him if he was seeing a counselor to help him navigate that. And he said, no, he couldn't afford one, but he could afford to drive to a doctor in another city that was giving him the hormones to have him start developing breasts and, um, and not have facial hair and things like that. So I think just being authentic Letting them know, I did let him know that as feminine as he tries to look, that I've known him for more years as a young man with a man's heart, and that I'm not going to ever be able to relate to him. I will love him the best that I can, but I really cannot all of a sudden think of him as I do my female friends or coworkers. Um, yeah. I think you said earlier, like when we're suffering, that's when like we feel closer to him because he suffered for us. So like, what are some tips, like, or some like readings we can do when we're suffering, okay. and to like know like he's there, like he's not doing this on purpose and stuff. Okay, first of all, can I just clarify? We probably won't feel closest to him when we're suffering. We are closest, but the evil one will say, "Look." If he knew how much this was tearing your heart apart, he could transform that. He could make your son not have a panic attack, or he could make this person all of a sudden embrace their gender. So it doesn't, it's not really about what we feel, because we oftentimes will feel the opposite, but it's trusting that he knows. And I think that going to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he asked that the cup pass from him. But then he says, not my will, but your will be done. So I think that like praying that, but it also goes back to the, I believe, help my unbelief. So <laughs> when I'm praying that, like take this cup away from me, um, but your will be done. I say, I don't really want your will. I want my will. I want the easy, smooth sailing route. But being willing to trust that and saying, Lord, I trust your word that, that you're with me, um, that you will never forsake me or abandon me, and that any suffering, so here's, here's one, um, St. Paul tells us that no matter what we suffer in this life, it cannot be compared to the glory that we will have with him in the next. But I also believe that he wants to make his kingdom present to us here and now, and that uniting in the suffering also helps us to experience a little bit of that glory now, if we allow it to. Did that get it? Yeah. What you were hoping for? Thank you. So we were talking at our table about how, like, when we go on camps or retreats, like, we experience this Jesus high where, like, you feel him and everything's super clear. But then you go back to your everyday life and it's just, you're lost again. And, like, you have this dry spell. And for me, a lot of the times it takes something like super big in my life to help me find him again. 
But what are your tips for finding him in those dry spells without it having to be like great suffering that you, you experienced? Um, a lot of this comes down to discipline, like having a prayer routine and being disciplined, even when we don't feel things or even think, like giving him that space. One of my good friends started a ministry for women called Kingdom Builders, and she says 10 to 15 minutes of prayer every day without fail. So that's the starting point. And then you have, um, gosh, was that Fulton Sheen or Mother Teresa, where they say pray a half hour every day unless you're busy, and if you're really busy, pray an hour. So I think just making ourselves available that's something that I'm on a constant, like that's part of my spiritual journey. We oftentimes tend to things that are passing, work, jobs, responsibilities, even leisure, to the expense of things that are eternal, which are our relationships with one another and with God. So examining my conscience and saying, how am I tending to things that are temporal or passing that aren't going to matter in God's kingdom? Am I having those things take precedence over what will be in God's kingdom, which is our relationship with each other and with God? It's a lifelong discipline. Um, Father Jacques Philippe has written several books, Making Time, like Making Time for God and a few others. He's one of my favorites, and his books are like this thin, so it's not like overwhelming even to pick him up. Yeah. So my question is this. Um, okay. You talked a lot about how you would journey with your biological and your spiritual children, um, and then you also talked about how as a teenager you learned your relationship with Jesus when you were in your point of chaos. Where do you find the balance between knowing when it's time to journey with other people and knowing when you need to journey with Christ because we kind of, we always need that. But then there are also right. times where he yeah. specifically calls us to journey with other people and, and to take his role in that. Yeah. Verse. That, yes, that is a very good question. My pastor, Father Dan Scheidt, whenever I go to him, oftentimes for spiritual direction um, about the young adult children that God has placed in my life, he says, even though I talk to Jesus and use his name to them, I need to be talking to Jesus about the children more than I'm talking to the person about Jesus. So spending that time in prayer, like the Lord knows what's in my heart, but he, like, I need to say it to him. Like, I'm worried about this person or I'm worried that they won't find their way. So definitely it is more important because God is way more powerful than I am that I'm spending more time talking to Jesus and having that prayer life so that I can be a vessel for that person. It can't be the other way around. Does that help? Okay. Yeah. And also just... Like, don't think that you have to have everything figured out to accompany somebody. He uses me to be able to, like, love other people. So please find consolation in that. You don't have to have everything figured out. And your, your life doesn't have to be, like, 
all ordered and not no chaos for you to journey with somebody else that's in chaos. Cling to each other. Share that you're in the boat with them. You're not hovering above them like, oh, poor you and all your stuff. Let them know that you're in that stuff with them. Does that help? Okay. Thank you.